to uh, this special occasion. Um, I'm Helena Kennedy and I'm the principal here at Mansfield College. And uh, this is special because it is our Milton lecture. And I'm going to invite our Milton Fellow to introduce our speaker tonight, David Leopold. So Helena has asked me to introduce this evening's lecture, which I'm very happy to do. Uh, my day job involves teaching political theory in the politics department of the university, but I'm also a tutor here at Mansfield, and my college fellowship, like this lecture, is named after John Milton. I'm told that Milton also wrote poetry, <laughs> but to political theorists, he's a defender of free speech, an advocate of republican freedom, and an occasional enthusiast for regicide. It's his statue, which you can see but not really identify from the ground, high up on the main tower over the door that you will have come through. To the non-conformists who established Mansfield, he lent a kind of intellectual authority and spiritual provenance to their early educational endeavours. This annual event is named after Milton at the request of Carolyn and Charles Brock. Unfortunately, Charles and Carolyn can't be here this evening because of Carolyn's ill health. They remain, however, much-loved members of the college community. They worked here for some 35 years and have since become generous benefactors to Mansfield. Charles always loved Oxford, but he worried that modern education had become over-specialised and otherworldly. He saw in Milton a fellow enthusiast for education which would be both interdisciplinary and aimed at practical, real-world results. <coughs> this is the third of these annual Milton Lectures, so it might be slightly premature to speak of a long and distinguished tradition, but I'm very happy to welcome Karen Armstrong, who is an ideal person to continue the discussion about faith and politics that Charles started. Karen is a hugely successful and widely honoured writer and broadcaster, her awards include the 2008 TED Prize, and she's written more than 20 books on religion and history, including A History of God, whose first chapter has the brilliant, because inevitable, title, In the Beginning. <laughs> Looking at the reception of that body of work, I'm struck by the fact that it seems to be a legal requirement, which I'm loath to flout, to mention that Karen was once a nun. It turns out, and this wasn't an analogy I've previously been struck by, that being a nun is now something a little bit like being an alcoholic. It continues to define you, no matter how long it is since you last had a drink. Karen has written in a hugely interesting and engaging way about the relationship between faith and modern society. Her writing seeks not just to understand, but also, and more importantly, to make a difference to the world. At their heart is her insistence that the principle of compassion, something like the golden rule, should be at the centre of morality and religion. Her talk this afternoon is entitled Fields of Blood, Religion and the History of Violence. Thank you very much. Um, my convent was in Oxford was just around the corner in what is now um, Lineker College. Um, so this is a, a, an interesting part of Oxford for me to visit. Right. Now I've lost count of the number of times I've jumped into a taxi in London and the cabbie asks me what I do for a living. And I quail because I know what is coming. If I tell him uh, what I do for a living, I'm informed quite categorically uh, that religion has been the cause of all the major wars in history. Um, and it's a very odd remark. And I've heard it, uh, versions of this mantra recited by a range of people on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, the idea that religion is so inherently aggressive that it must, perforce, uh, be uh, rigorously excluded from uh, public life. And it, but it is an odd remark because the two world wars were not fought for religion, but for secular nationalism. Um, the uh, his, military historians tell us 
uh, that we never go to war for a single reason. There are always a number of interlocking factors that drive us to warfare, uh, and, and one of the chief of which being economic, the, comp the, 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 the competition for scarce resources. Um, and experts in terrorism tell us that no matter what the ideology uh, for an, uh, that inspires an atrocity, uh, relig uh, terrorism is always inescapably political. Um, it is about grabbing power, uh, challenging the status quo, or terrorizing uh, the populace to, to change policy, to change the course of action. Um, now, uh, certainly, uh, we're seeing a spate of religiously articulated violence at the moment. But to put it all down to uh, mindless fanaticism is dangerous for us because it means we're not looking at all the factors and issues that are involved at this very, very dangerous time in history. Um, now, the problem is conflated for us in the West because of what we've developed since the 18th century a very peculiar understanding of the word religion. We now see religion as a sort of private quest, um, that one that is essentially separate from other activities, such as politics or uh, social work, that kind of thing. It's, it's something that is, a, that is personal, private, and therefore uh, shouldn't intrude on political life. And often it centers on a supernatural god and has a coherent set of beliefs and practices. Now, no other uh, tradition, world tradition, has anything like this conception of religion. And it would have been very strange indeed to pre-modern Christians here in Europe. Um, the words that we routinely translate religion in other languages almost invariably have a much wider frame of reference. Uh, Dharma, for example, uh, which, or, or Deen in Arabic, which signifies a whole way of life. The rabbis who uh, composed the Talmud had no conce abstract conception of religion in our sense. And in the Talmud, their, uh, their, their aim was to bring the whole of life into the ambit of the sacred. The Oxford Classical Dictionary, Oxford no doubt, uh, tells us that no word in either Greek or Latin corresponds to the English religion or religious. Um, before the modern period, um, religion permeated all aspects of life. It wasn't something separate. It pervaded everything. Why? because people want to imbue everything they do with meaning. We are meaning-seeking creatures. Uh, we ask why. We get perplexed when we fail to find something of significance in our lives uh, in ways that other uh, animals don't seem to. Dogs, for example, don't seem to spend a great deal of time worrying about the canine condition or the plight of dogs in other parts of the world. Um, but we do, we have this, this is, this is our glory and our, and our, and our trouble. Um, and so we, we imbue uh, our, whatever we do with meaning. Um, and so thoroughly did religion permeate all aspects of life that trying to take it out of politics, uh, it would have been uh, until about 1800, would have seemed like a trying to take the gin out of a cocktail. <laughs> Something that is odd and indeed undesirable. Uh, now, this wasn't because uh, these people were too stupid to uh, mix up or confuse two utterly distinct realms, uh, because matters such as justice, the, uh, the, the behavior of rulers towards their subjects, poverty, oppression, uh, these were matters of sacred import. And the prophets of Israel would have very harsh words for people who 
were very religious and said their prayers very nicely and attended religious services in the temple, but ignored the plight of the poor and the oppressed. Uh, so at once, and we'll see, that once we banished religion from, uh, once we banished Christianity uh, from uh, the political world in the, during the 18th century, uh, we found another sacred value to take its place and to imbue what we did with meaning. But that, that comes later. Now, uh, the dangers, as I say, of the approach of sort of piling all the current problems of, that we're experiencing every time we pick up a newspaper, it seems to me, at the moment, and piling it all onto the back of religion is to ignore uh, aspects of our situation that we must take account of. I'm not saying that religion is not implicated in some of these atrocities. Obviously it is. But that simply that it's never the sole, nor even the main reason. And we have to see our situation whole. Well, let's just look at Paris, for example, the recent uh, catastrophes, ca catastrophe in, in Paris. Now, the attack, what we concentrated on here, I was interested to see, was the attack on Charlie Hebdo, the, the magazine. Um, and, you know, the, the, uh, a lot of people simply assumed that this fanatical devotion to the Prophet Muhammad led to this appalling uh, crime. And that's what it is, it's a crime. Um, but politics was definitely there too. If as they claimed, Al-Qaeda was behind that attack, or supporting it, or claiming responsibility for it. Al-Qaeda, as we know from September the 11th, uh, chooses its targets very carefully indeed. On 9-11, it chose the iconic buildings that represented America's economic and military power. Uh, this was an attack on sacred values. Freedom of speech is a sacred value for us in the secular West. Uh, it is one of, the, one of the great prizes of the Enlightenment. It's essential to our economy. Uh, unless, we the, unless we have the ability to think innovatively without being hampered by a church or a guild or a class, uh, I, we can't innovate uh, in the way that modern capitalist society demands. And so freedom of speech, freedom of expression, was one of the great modern virtues, and we prize it. So it's sacred to us, not because it has anything supernatural, uh, but because it is absolutely essential to our um, being, <coughs> non-negotiable. We identify with it so wholly that when it's attacked, we feel ourselves assaulted, and that was definitely coming up. So, uh, in, the, in, the, in the days after uh, Charlie Hebdo. So, uh, Al-Qaeda was saying, here, uh, you attack our sacred values, we'll attack yours. Now see how it feels. And they, uh, Al-Qaeda would have been thrilled by the response. Because the marching, uh, the uh, assertions of freedom, Liberté uh, were could and all that phalanx of rather unlikely people who are heralding human rights and freedom speech, uh, marching arm in arm, could, they could depict this. Al Qaeda can depict it as a, as, as a, uh, a recruiting tool to show that the West is marching against Islam. This is not what they were doing, of course, but Al Qaeda is not necessarily interested in truth. Um, now. Al-Qaeda longs to create a clash of civilizations. Um, and that's, in, that's entirely uh, what, it was, what it was seeking to do, that the political thing was there too. What I was disturbed about was that there was far more talk about this, where we were you know, puffed up with self-righteous distress, um, which I shall question in a moment. Um, and we didn't talk so much about the supermarket, the attack on the Jewish supermarket. 
Uh, now, I was in Holland immediate, almost immediately after that uh, attack, and I was asked, is Islam incurably and endemically anti-Semitic? Um, well, no, uh, anti-Semitism is a Christian, Western Christian vice. It was introduced into the Middle East by Christian missionaries in the 19th century. And when the, uh, the Muslim population heard these extraordinary myths about Jews as child slayers, they laughed. It seemed so absurd. But since uh, the State of Israel became a possibility, uh, and our anti-Semitism has been a, uh, an import, one of the Western imports, cultural imports that they've been happy to uh, adopt. But it's about Palestine. Uh, I served after 9-11 on a UN commission uh, that was called to diagnose the causes of extremism. And we all, there were 25 of us from every region of the world, and we all said that unless there was a solution to the Arab-Israeli conflict, any of the other uh, problems that, that we were addressing, like immigration, education, youth opportunities, would not work. This is the heart of the problem, and that was what uh, they, what the, the, the attack on the supermarket was about. Um, especially since uh, apparently ISIS, or IS, uh, was said to be behind this one, and IS, as you know, wants to conquer Palestine uh, and take it back for Islam. Okay. So, we, 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 in all our talk about freedom, again, we were ignoring the Palestine problem. And I have no solution for the Palestine problem. I can't give you what, I, you know, what, what can be done. But this is something we, we have to address uh, if we want peace in our time. Though how it's to be done, don't ask me. Now, but also, it's, we're not looking straight at our own situation always. Freedom is an enlightenment virtue. Now, people are often telling me, well, of course, the reason why uh, Muslims can't cope with the modern world is that they didn't have an enlightenment. Uh, now, I'm, you know, all for the enlightenment. Um, I'm, a, I'm a beneficiary of it. Um, and it was a wonderful and important uh, moment in European and Western history. But like all human movements, it was not perfect. And freedom was one of those issues. Uh, the founding fathers of the United States, who uh, were very uh, much inspired by the Enlightenment and uh, said all men are created equal, were quite happy and comfortable about owning African slaves. Uh, they were quite happy about despoiling the Native Americans. Jefferson, of all people, in 1807, said to his minister of war uh, that the uh, Native Americans were barbarous peoples uh, who had to be driven beyond the Mississippi uh, to live with the wild beasts. And John Locke, pioneer of human rights, uh, did not apply these human rights, of which, which he listed as uh, life, liberty, and property. Uh, to the indigenous peoples of the New World. They, they did, had no property rights to their land, he said, uh, and uh, they, uh, a master, he said, had absolute and despotical power over a slave, which included the right to kill him at any time. And so when you talk, in the, you're in the Middle East and you're talking about freedom, it raises a kind of hollow laugh uh, because uh, the modern economy came to this region not with freedom, the freedom that we were winning for ourselves, but with colonial subjugation. And uh, since we took John Locke's um, attitudes with us into our colonies, and uh, Western powers, Britain, the United States, have frequently 
uh, supported regimes in that region which have denied their people any freedom of expression. So, and they have not forgotten this. Um, and so uh, the thing is much more complex than just a bunch of religious fanatics shooting up the staff of a magazine. <clears throat> now, if you look back in history, uh, some of the great disasters that we're all that are always cited, the Crusades, for example, certainly they, these were think these were conflicts were imbued with religious passions. No doubt about it. But they were also deeply political. Pope Urban II, who called the First Crusade, wanted to extend the power of the Western papacy into the Eastern world, especially against the, the Orthodox, uh, the Eastern Orthodox, who denied the supremacy of the Pope. By the end of the crusading period, the political impact of a crusade at home was, seemed to matter far more to participants than what actually happened in the Middle East. Uh, the same goes for the so-called wars of religion of the, uh, and, and the Thirty Years' mm. War. Certainly they were uh, imbued and pervaded in that gin-like cocktail uh, with the passions of the Reformation. But if it had been only about religion, you wouldn't expect to find Catholics and Protestants fighting on the same side. But in fact, uh, they often did so, and as a result, uh, killed and fought their co-religionists. Uh, certainly, they were, they were felt as religious wars, but they were also two uh, wars between two different sets of state builders. The emperor, who wanted to create a sort of uh, a European-wide empire on the Ottoman model, and the princes and kings who wanted to create sovereign independent states. Independent states that where, they, where the ruler was sovereign, which meant he had to subdue the church. Um, and when the term secularization was first coined, it referred to the transference of church property to the lay sphere. That was what happened uh, in the French Reformation, Re French, French Revolution, uh, when uh, the first secular state was created in Europe. One of the first acts of the National Assembly was to uh, confiscate church property and put it at the disposal of the state to pay off the national debt. And that was followed by the September massacres in which thousands of priests were killed in the prisons. And then uh, the horror of the uprising in the Vendée uh, in the same year as the Reign of Terror, uh, in which uh, the, the people of Western France rebelled against the, the regime, uh, especially about its anti-Catholic policies. And about a quarter of a million people may have been killed by the revolutionary armies. So, uh, I'm all for living in a secular country. I, I'm very happy. The last thing I want is for us to go back to the theocratic rule. Um, but we have to understand that uh, secularism is not necessarily a recipe for peace. Uh, quite often, you know, the, the, when the Muslim Brotherhood was unseated, there was a sort of... An, uh, almost audible sigh of relief. Um, but um, the, uh, the horror of the, 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 of the secular military regime that's replaced it is not exactly a sign for, for, of, 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 of hope uh, for what the secular realm can be. Um, secularism is good for religion, I think, not least because it liberates religion from the government, the inevitable justice and violence of the government, and enables the, uh, the, the, the practitioners of religion to take a prophetic stand against the injustice, inevitable injustice and violence of the state. Um, but in the Middle East, uh, secularism has been experienced 
something very different from what we have experienced here. We had time to develop our secular institutions under our own steam, according to our own dynamic, uh, and not according to somebody else's program, and in a hurry. Uh, they, these countries had to secularize so rapidly uh, that uh, it was often experienced as an assault. Um, Ataturk, for example, is often hailed as a sort of hero here in uh, the, the West, and, you know, an enlightened Muslim, because he did secularize. Uh, he, Ataturk was not an enlightened Muslim, he hated Islam. Uh, he called it uh, a putrefying corpse. Um, and he was, uh, when he secularized, what he did was what, he took a leaf out of the French Revolution's book and confiscated all the, all the ecclesiastical property. Um, and then he also closed down all the madrasas and abolished the Sufi orders. The Sufi mystics of Islam had played a hugely important social as well as religious role in the region. Uh, the, this was a short-sighted policy. It would be followed by people like Nasser in Egypt because it deprived the people of learned religious guidance at a time when they're going through this crucial transition from uh, pre-modern to modern society. Uh, people who were aware of the complexities of the tradition and whose uh, interpretation of the Quran uh, had kept extremism at bay. Um, because the, uh, just, as, uh, in, just as the Talmud uh, governed the way Jews read the Bible, and actually knocked out, tried to extrapolate a lot of the violence, uh, the, nobody in the pre-modern world read the Quran by itself. You always read it in conjunction with learned ulama who would uh, question some of the most some of the most draconian aspects of the Quran, like the uh, like the chopping off pre chopping off uh, hands of thieves, pointing out all the other things in the Quran which militate against such a draconian action. Now, of course, without the learned guidance uh, in these modernizing countries, uh, there was a spiritual vacuum into which freelancers like Bin Laden could pop in. Step in. Now, Bin Laden it has no more uh, authority to deliver a fatwa than I have. Uh, but so this was this was this was not a well-judged policy. Also, Ataturk, to come back to him, uh, he was associated uh, with the policies of ethnic cleansing uh, that were had been uh, draconianly introduced by the Young Turks. Uh, that had resulted in the Armenian massacres. Um, but what he did was uh, push all the uh, uh, Turkish-speaking Muslims who were living in what's now Greece into uh, Turkey and push all the Greek-speaking Christians in the Ottoman Empire out to what's now Greece. Uh, and so that it would be uh, Ataturk would be associated forever with, with, with this, and his secularism would be associated in the region with this kind of policy. The Shahs used to make their soldiers go out uh, with their bayonets out, taking off the women's veils and ripping them to pieces in front of them on the, in the street. In 1935, Shah Reza Pahlavi gave his soldiers orders to fire at hundreds of unarmed demonstrators in one of the holiest shrines of Iran who were peacefully protesting against obligatory Western dress. These modernizing rulers wanted their countries to look modern, that is to look European, even though the people had no understanding of the vast majority of the people had no understanding of the new Western ethos. And why would, why would they want to dress in this fancy dress? Hundreds of Iranians died that day. Um, and uh, if, you if you spoke against the Shah uh, in the parliament, you were assassinated. Uh, and Nasser, in 1954, uh, 
incarcerated thousands of members of the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, often without trial and for doing little more in, in, incriminating things than handing out leaflets or attending a meeting. They spent 15 years in this, these ghastly prisons, and that is when the Muslim Brotherhood became radicalized. Very often, these secularizing policies have had the effect of pushing religion into a more violent and aggressive mode. Every one of the so-called fundamentalist movements that I've studied in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam has begun with what's perceived to be an assault by the liberal or secular establishment. <clears throat> and when these movements are attacked, they invariably become more extreme because all of them are rooted in a profound fear of annihilation. And that's not um, paranoid. Uh, the, uh, if you think, if you're um, one of the Muslim brothers 15 years in that uh, prison, hideous prisons they were, and heard Nasser vowing to secularize uh, Egypt on the Western model, this did not seem a benign process. Um, and so, so Arabic, and people felt that their lifestyle, everything they held dear, was under attack. Um, and so when these movements are attacked, they invariably become more extreme, either attacked by a media campaign or with guns, uh, because it convinces them that their suspicions are correct, that the world is out to destroy, destroy what they stand for. Now, <clears throat> No sooner had the French uh, got rid of Catholicism, as they thought, in, during the, in the post-revolutionary period, uh, than they invented another religion, uh, nationalism. In the summer in which uh, the uh, goddess of reason was enthroned on the altar of Notre Dame Cathedral, uh, the uh, and in the same year as the Reign of Terror began, um, there was an extraordinary explosion of festivals. It was called, uh, celebrating the French nation and liberté. So you process, there would be a giant statue, for example, of, <coughs> of the nation, La France, with many copious breasts, which, uh, from which water was decanted uh, by the 12 air into cups, for the 12 leaders of the various districts of Paris who had a holy communion. And then they proceeded to the next uh, place where they, there was a large statue of Liberté, etc. And it, uh, the, it was called, these festivals uh, were so uh, extreme and Rousseau-like. They were sort of festivals that Rousseau had, had already recommended should, should take place. Uh, it, they were creating uh, land, land, the nation as a holy, a holy thing. Um, and if you can, if you, if the mark of the sacred is that it's something for which you're prepared to die, you can see that perhaps, in some sense, uh, the nation has replaced God, because it's now no longer acceptable to die for your religion, but admirable to die for your country. Now, nationalism was essential for our industrialization. It mobilized the whole nation for industry, but it was impossible to create a national spirit before modern communications. How would we, we know that we shared anything with people way up in Wales or something? Uh, but now, and it, it's hardly a rational movement. Um, uh, the last night of the proms, for example, uh, you know, Rule Britannia is sung. Um, we see them on the, the great screens, everyone singing it in various parts of the nation. And our hearts swell within us, and we feel we are at one. And uh, it's quite irrational, because it's a long time since Britain has ruled any waves at all. <laughs> um, and we know that. But it has, and, and, but this is nevertheless, the form of religiosity, of sacredness, uh, that now has impels most of our wars. And many of the so-called uh, religious movements, 
that trouble us today have been imbued with the new nationalism, Hinduism, for example, uh, Hindu nationalism. Uh, there was before the British arrived in America in, 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 in the subcontinent, there was nothing called Hinduism. This was a British invention. Um, uh, the British split the pop, vast, pop, teeming population uh, of the subcontinent up into what they re thought they recognized, so that there were Sikhs and Muslims and Christians, and the vast majority practiced a range of hugely different kind of cults that bore no relation to one another. Uh, and they, lumped, they were all lumped together into something called Hinduism. And now we have Hindu nationalism. Um, and the same has happened to Zionism. Uh, Zionism, uh, uh, Jewish nationalism, began as a, an extremely secular movement, as a rebellion against re religious Judaism, um, and that has now been imbued with the national spirit, so that you, will, you can say, uh, the, so that the ideologues like uh, Rabbi Yehuda Cook. Uh, in the 80s could say that every clod of Israel's soil is holy, its army is holy, everything, it, all its state institutions, secular though they be, are holy. Again, difficult to maintain, uh, because any state uh, does things that are not always holy, uh, if we're realistic about it. But so many of these movements have been infused with the new religion of of nationalism. But nationalism, uh, for all its uh, many strengths and, and, and all the sort of heartening that it uh, gives us, uh, it has a, has a flaw. Uh, in the late 19th century, Lord Acton, British historian, um, pointed out that, uh, it, that the emphasis in the nation state upon ethnicity, culture, and language would mean that people who did not fit the national profile would be vulnerable. In certain circumstances, he said, they could be exterminated. And some of the catastrophes of the 20th century can be seen in this light. Uh, the Armenian massacres, for example, the desire to create a purely Turkic state, uh, the Holocaust, an inability uh, to accept the Jewish minority, Bosnia again. Um, and it, it has exacerbated uh, uh, such uh, religious conflicts as the Sunni Shi'i divide, in, uh, because cultural minorities have suddenly become uh, more suspect than they were before. And Christians, too, who for years were accepted in the region as part of the scene, are now more vulnerable. Um, and so nationalism has been, has been a problem, and it's also affected the phenomenon of suicide bombing. Now people, I remember when I uh, was mooting the idea of this book to my publishers, uh, one of the, the suicide bombing was brought up and my editor at that time said, well Karen, they're doing this for God, aren't they? And I said, look, have you ever tried to do anything wholly for God. I have, I did it for seven years uh, as a nun, and it's utterly impossible. Uh, because uh, our motivation, as any sort of, uh, anybody, can, honest person will say, it's always hugely mixed with a home, imbued with all kinds of things. To purify your intention and do something wholly for God is virtually impossible. Now, uh, it's interesting that the uh, technique of suicide bombing was not invented by religious people, but by the Tamil Tigers, who had no time whatever for religion. And until the Iraq War, the Tamil Tigers held the undisputed record for the number of suicide attacks. Uh, the, uh, Robert Pape of the University of Chicago has made a detailed study of every single suicide attack that has taken place between 1980 and 2004, and concluded, and I quote here, that it has nothing to do with Islamic fundamentalism, nor indeed with any religion uh, at all. 
Uh, it occurs when uh, the homeland of a people is invaded by a militarily superior power. And that's what happened in Lebanon during the 1980s when Lebanon was invaded by the, both the Israelis, the local superpower, and the United States. Uh, there were about 30 attacks, and, and the, the, the numbers differ, but the general bias of these findings are the same. Um, the, uh, there were about 30 of these attacks in Lebanon during the uh, 1980s. Of these, seven were performed by Muslims, three by Christians, and the rest by secularists and socialists from neighboring Syria. Um, now, um, and, we see, and we see this also very much in the suicide bombing of Hamas, uh, with again the homeland being invaded. Uh, the, uh, they've now, of course, uh, abandoned this tactic. But if you uh, listen to the uh, martyr videos of the young people who did these appalling actions, it's fascinating to watch them segueing from uh, one, a religious into a secular mode and back again. Uh, one of them will start off saying, today I'm going to meet the Lord of the worlds. Here we are doing this all for God. Then he goes into a, a, a cry for nationalism, for the, to the country of Palestine, and he, he draws not only on the great uh, religious heroes of the past, but on the secular Palestinian Mujahideen who fought the British. Uh, then he goes into a third world mode where he hopes that Hamas will be a beacon of hope uh, for all the peoples of the world who are, who are uh, sort of kept under by imperialism, Western imperialism, and then back to religion. It is a, it's that he segues from one to the other quite unselfconsciously in that kind of cocktail that I mentioned earlier. Very difficult to fill out one strain. And unless, if we, if we just put this down to, oh, well, they're doing it for God, they must be mad, and, uh, and fail to realize the depth of the importance of their nationalism and their third world ideology, we're not seeing the, the situation as fully as we really need to at this time. Now, uh, ISIS, one of the, ISIS is a very modern movement in many ways, uh, but mass killing has unfortunately been uh, the experience of the modern period. Um, and um, one of the things it's showing is, in a very eccentric way, is the inadequacies of the nation-state, especially in that part of the world. Uh, these nation-states of these borders were drawn up by the British in a really bizarre and arbitrary way. And so they, they, they all were set up to fail. Uh, but nationalism, which may have had its day, and it's creaking, um, you, there's all these upsurges of nationalistic feelings, Scotland wanting to withdraw from the European Union, uh, uh, from, from Britain, and, and you know, I, UKIP wanting to get out of Europe, etc., be purely British, uh, and the worry about immigration, the same old problems of, of, of nationalism. But one of the things that nationalism is not helping us with is that it is not helping us to live uh, productively and realistically in our globalized world. Uh, we are now profoundly interconnected with one another. Our economies are, are interdependent. When stocks fall in one part of the world, the markets plummet all around the globe that day. Uh, what happens in Afghanistan today can have a blowback effect uh, in the West, politically. Uh, we all share the same environmental catastrophe, possibility of it. Um, and we're all linked together at the same time as we're deeply polarized by the uh, electronic media. So that we are, we are drawn together, and yet we are still behaving as if we were in that privileged category. Our politicians 
are constantly they have, talking about national security, national uh, economy, national prosperity. We've got to start thinking global, too, because our histories are intertwined. I found very early, when I first visited the Middle East, way back in 1980, knowing nothing about uh, the problems there, I went to make a documentary series on St. Paul. But um, I was soon engaged, as you are, when living in Jerusalem for a long time, uh, with people, with Palestinians and Israelis, uh, all putting their case to me very passionately, and all or rather none of them not had a good word to say for the British. Um, and I began to realize this is not just their problem, this is our problem too. Our histories are, in Britain, deeply intertwined with those of the people who were in our empire. Um, and uh, the subcontinent, for example, uh, Britain, we're there, this is our problem too. We can't just say, oh, well, the, the, this is a problematic region. <coughs> and I think uh, we have to... Uh, one of the things that disturbed me about Paris, to come back to that, was it was appalling, Paris was appalling, and Copenhagen also appalling. What if one person dead is one too many. But the West is not alone in suffering from um, uh, extremism. Uh, short, not so long before that, 165 Pakistani children had been shot, killed by the Taliban. Uh, 2,000 Nigerian villagers were killed by Boko Haram. Um, and they get a sort of a, a bit of a mention and the casualty figures, too, of our wars, which disturb me. Um, I believe this, these figures are right, uh, that uh, in 1914 to 1918, in World War I, only 5% of the people who died were civilians. In 19, uh, during World War II, that number went up to 66.5% as the Allies created firestorms uh, in scientifically created firestorms in the residential areas of Germany and Japan. I believe now in our wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, it's now up to 90%. People who, men and women, who've not committed terrorist actions, but who've died uh, from extremism or from this collateral damage in that terrible phrase. And we never mention them. I was in Jordan uh, just a couple of few weeks ago, and I had a, uh, I gave a lecture similar to this uh, to a very select audience. They were, they were not a bunch of hotheads. I did talk to the students, uh, and I had took questions for three hours. Uh, but uh, the, I, this, these were, you know, elder statesmen. One of them. Was, uh, had a long talk with him afterwards, was the foreign minister who had crafted the peace agreement with Israel, between Israel and Jordan. These were not hotheads. But he said to me in question time, the West has lost its humanity. We, you mourn only your own people. Um, and this, this is noticed. I, in just over, a, it was 18 months ago, um, a Pakistani woman, 65 years old, was uh, picking vegetables in her plot in northwestern Pakistan and was blown to pieces by a drone missile, a US drone missile, in front of her nine grandchildren. Um, many of those children have had to have multiple surgery because they were also wounded in this attack. And the, um, uh, the family can't afford this because they lost most of their livestock in this assault. The young, the little ones, still scream all night long. Um, her son uh, took this to Congress. And he said that 
Um, not, no one has acknowledged this. Not my own government, the Pakistani government. Uh, not the United States. They've even, not even admitted that this has happened. Never mind apologizing or offering compensation. He said, quite simply, nobody seems to care. Um, and I think this is a very dangerous state of affairs. We pride ourselves on our humanity. And, but in a globalized, uh, globalized world, uh, we have somehow to acknowledge our relationship to that woman and the many like her, and mention them, and honor them, as, at the same time as we honor our soldiers who are returning, who are, who, who are killed in, in battle. Because they too uh, are our brothers and sisters in our globalized world. We are connected with them by all kinds of ties. And I start my book out uh, with an epigraph, uh, the Cain and Abel story, where God, when after um, uh, Cain has killed his brother, Abel, God says to him, where's your brother, Abel? And Cain says, I know, I know. Am I the watcher of my brother? And God says, what have you done? Hark, your brother's blood is crying to me from the soil. And I think one of our jobs in our terrifying world is to acknowledge the blood of hapless people uh, who have uh, died in our wars, not just because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. If we don't do this, we can't escape uh, the accusation that is levelled against us, that was levelled against us being Jordan, that we maintain an arrogant silence in the face of the suffering of the world. Um, and uh, we give the impression that we think that some lives are more valuable than others. Thank you.